Our scripture lesson today comes from James chapter 2. Uh, we're in a series where we're going through the book of James. It only has five chapters. And so um, next week, if you'll read chapter 3 with us, we'll be there, then 4 and 5. Uh, and you'll be all the way through by the end of August. So we hope you'll stay with us. Let's share in God's good word together. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. The letter she wrote documented the loneliness she endured over a period of six decades. Dear Father Van Exem, never in all my life did I know there was such suffering in the world as I have seen here. On the train, the voice was very clear. I must leave the solace of the convent and give my life to serve the poorest of the poor. Sister, it's not safe for you to be out here. These people are hungry, desperate. You know, foistered nuns cannot go outside the walls. But I must do something. I must do something. Mother Teresa was born in Kosovo, Macedonia, uh, but you might know her as Mother Teresa of where? Calcutta, of India, because of her work. And she would say this, if you can't feed 100 people, then feed just what? One. Feed one. Uh, Mother Teresa puts a voice to something that I think all Christians struggle with, and that is the, the more and more we know the constant communication of the world's needs, it, it's overwhelming. In, in ways that has never been true before in our world, you can know almost instantaneously about needs all around the world, about things that, that need to happen, about people who are hurting, who are starving, who are naked, who are, who are in need of food. All of these things we know, and we can, we can become overwhelmed. We're like, no, I can't do it all, but we can feed one. You can feed one. I can feed one. We can feed one as a community. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. Um, I use Mother Teresa as a starter because when I think of faith in action, she's who comes to mind, isn't it? But I think if we're not careful, it can be sort of a, a, a trap because we think, oh, well, I can't be Mother Teresa, so I'm, I'm out. And, and James uh, has a lot to say uh, about this. Now, before we hop into our sermon notes, if you take them out and follow along, they, they might be helpful to you this week. Um, let me, let me kind of give, give a disclaimer. If this is your first time in church today, this sermon is going to make a ton of sense to you. It's not going to be hard for you at all. You're going to look at the sermon and go, yep, sure, why not? Um, because James calls us to do the things that Jesus did. And if, you're, if you've never been to church before, you're like, sure, this makes a lot of sense. However, if you're like me and you've been in church almost 50 years now, um, it's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, because the thing is, um, James begins to poke the early church who had already begun to forget who we were called to be. And so just, just know that. So if you're new here, good for you. It's going to be easy. If you're a longtime Christian, um, I'm sorry. Um, but, but it is the text. We just got, got to work through it. Okay. So the context is this. We looked at this last week. James speaks not to individual virtue, but of a community's faith and fidelity to God in 49 AD. What's the key word there? Communities. So when we read this, imagine yourself sitting beside your small group. Imagine yourself sitting alongside the people that you're close to in the faith. Imagine yourself not, James, speaking to you, but speaking to y'all. Or around here, all y'all. Right? 
So, so he's speaking to us. So this isn't something you do by yourself. This is something that James is calling us to as a church. Not only this church, but churches and churches all around the world. So this is spoken into a faith community, not to an individual. And anytime you're reading the Bible, try to remember that, that you're not reading it alone. You're reading it alongside Christians that have belong before you, Christians in your same church, Christians in other churches, Christians in other towns, other countries. This is something much bigger than we are. So we, we don't need to lose our breath over it. It's something we can do, but it's something we can only do in God's power and together as community. So who's James? James is Jesus' little brother. Uh, he's also the bishop of Jerusalem. Now, this is a big deal because this is about 16 years after Jesus' resurrection. And so the church is, is young. Uh, it's growing, but it's still small. And so James is the head of the church in Jerusalem, which was the core city of the faith. Because Jerusalem, of course, where the temple was, uh, where the Jewish faith resided. And so this is, a, this is a very important thing that James is the leader of the church here. Now, all bishop means in the early church is you're the leader of the church wherever. There weren't thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians yet. And so if you were the leader of the church in Rome, you're the bishop of Rome. That's all it means. Okay, so we don't need to kind of get hung up on the title. It doesn't mean uh, bishop in the same way it means today. Similar, but it's really almost more like being the pastor of the area. Okay, so it makes sense. And now we get to the hard part. And that is, um, in October, we will come up to the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther in 1517. Uh, I would submit to you that the American church, the Western church, is, is more influenced by Luther than almost anybody else. Uh, Calvin and Luther uh, out of the 1500s. In 1517, um, there was a, he, Luther was an Augustinian monk, um, and he was trying to right the problems that he saw in the Catholic Church. In particular, the cell of indulgences uh, that allowed you to pay off your sin. And, and he was like, this, this can't work. This doesn't work. Um, and he got crossways uh, with the Catholic Church. And by 1521, in the Edict of Worms, he was out. And so, um, basically, Lutheranism comes over to America, deeply influences everybody else. Influences, influenced our founder, John Wesley, uh, who was an Anglican priest in the 1700s. And so, you may hear this a lot. You were saved by faith, what? Alone. Saved by faith alone. That's what Martin Luther would say. But I would also let you know uh, that Martin Luther is crossways with James. Martin Luther would say, like, I don't like the book of James. Now, somehow, he wasn't able to get it thrown out, probably because James was Jesus' brother. Uh, there were other books that did get thrown out by Luther and the Bible, okay? But that's another sermon. You, we can look at that. Maybe we'll talk about it in Disciple Fast Track. Um, but for here, that, just know that in the Western church, there's this push between the teaching of Luther on faith alone and what James teaches, the brother of Jesus. And just know that James was around when Jesus was around and predates Luther by 1,500 years. And so we, we have to take uh, James' words seriously while also hearing the important words of, of Luther that says, hey... You can't earn your way to salvation, and he's exactly right about that. So what's the difference? Uh, you, you may have, have gone back and forth about this if you've been in the church a long time. Dallas Willard gets it right. He says this, grace is not opposed to effort, but opposed to earning. Will you say that with me? Grace is not opposed to effort, but opposed to earning. What's the difference? Effort is about action. Say that with me. Effort is about action. Earning is about attitude. It's about attitude. Okay, so you can't ever earn your salvation. Nobody can be good enough or do enough to make God give us salvation. It doesn't work that way. It's a gift. It's always a gift. It's a gift for you. It's a gift for me. It's a gift for the Pope. It's, good. it's a gift for everyone. It was a gift for Mother Teresa. You can't earn it, no matter how much you do. But it does take our best effort. It takes all that we have. It took Jesus' best effort to kneel in the garden, to go to the cross, to feed 5,000, 7,000, 4,000, to heal the lame, to walk the dusty roads, to walk to Jerusalem from Nazareth, 
a two-week trip. It takes great effort to live out our faith, friends. It just does. And, and we need to not hide and act like it doesn't by faith alone. It's not um, congruent with the text. And so to say it a different way, we can't earn our salvation, but it does take what, friends? Effort. It does. It takes our effort, it takes our resources, it takes the very best of who we are to live out our faith for one that will actually transform the world. Uh, one, uh, another mentor of mine that I read uh, quite often, I recommend him to you, uh, is John Ortberg. And he says this, spiritual growth requires that our life with God move from the should category to the what? Want to category. Now this is important. Because I do not want you in this series to hear me saying, I need you to suck it up, get your duty on, and be a very mean 20-year tenured Sunday school teacher that hates kids, but I'm here because I love Jesus. Nobody buys that, right? Because like we said last week, people may not believe what you say, but they will believe what you do, right? And so our hearts are to look like Jesus where we want to do what Jesus does. We want to be about his business. We want, with glad and cheerful hearts, we give and have people in our homes and we care for others because we just couldn't do otherwise. Because the love of God poured out for us is, is pouring out of us now. And so it's, it, don't, don't mishear me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm, I'm not looking for a whole bunch of grumpy Christians. I'm wanting to look for people that are alive with the, the love of Jesus for others. And so when we see a need, we, we simply can't help ourselves but jump into it and, and ask God to be a part of the redemption of the world. So James says it like this. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but. Letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Say that with me. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are or what they look like. Um, another way of saying it is like this. For faith to be real, it must be translated into deeds. Otherwise, one's faith is only self-what? Deception deception okay now um i'm i'm sort of loath to do this but but i have to tell a story on myself it's kind of embarrassing but um it is the truth in 1986 uh reagan was the president uh the top movie was top gun and uh kenny Loggins' danger zone was the theme song so anybody graduate 86 with me yeah i'm the only one okay um (laughs) So anyway, it was a good year for me, um, and I graduated from Fairview, and I went to college. I, was, I went ahead and did summer school uh, that summer, and it was a lot of fun, um, really cool uh, stuff was happening. Uh, for, for those of you who are younger, just know this was when Oprah started. Uh, she was syndicated in 86. Fox News uh, started in 86. None of that was around before uh, that year, and so some of you are like, I've heard of Oprah. So anyway, um, in that year... I mean, there's, there's a lot of good things going on. Um, and this guy, um, with my cool little knit tie, they're coming back, maybe. Steve, are they coming back? Sure. So, thanks. Um, so, so, anyway, um, I, I am in desperate need of a scholarship. And I heard that Farmhouse Attorney had a $500 scholarship um, for guys who are from rural towns, primarily, who, that took scholarships seriously. I was like, hey, I'm in. I'm going to do that my... My pledge, uh, my pledge trainer is Paul Davis, who's here today. Uh, but the rush chairman was Harlan Hinches. And Harlan uh, said, hey, I want to take you to lunch. I was like, all right, there's a lot of great places in Stillwater. I mean, like Hideaway and, you know, Eskimo Joe's. I mean, there's so many good places to eat. He says, we're going to Slotsky's. I'm like, okay. So we, we, so we go to Slotsky's in Stillwater. And, and so we're there, and he's like, hey, we're going to visit. I'm like, okay. And, and he'd tell me about yourself, and, and I was doing the best. I was like, look, I got a 383 out of high school. You know, the, I, I just gonna, I'm going to do a good job. You know, you really, 
you should have me. I'm a Boy Scout, and you know, blah, blah, blah. All the stuff out of high school. I'm already doing well in school, and um, I really, you know, I really need that scholarship. And we visited, and he was like, great, you know, it's nice. You know, there are a lot of smart guys now. You're not going to be the only uh, kid coming out of There's a lot of guys actually smarter than you. So, you know, it's probably not going to go to you, but we'll see, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay. I, I had a sandwich. It was good. And then just to kind of seal the deal, I wanted to make sure, you know, that we were connecting on a deep level and that I was upping my chances. And so I, I thought to myself, self, just make sure that there's no little crumbs on your mouth. You know, give him a big smile. You know, do your very best to interview stuff. I'm like, okay. So I take this napkin, and I, from like all the way over my ear, I take it, and I'm just like kind of going all the way over to, my, to the other side just to, you know, seal it up. And um, I look over at him, and he's got the weirdest look on his face. He's like, I'm like, and he's like, and I'm like, and he says, you, you just wipe mayonnaise and mustard from here all, all the way across your face to here. You, you might, you might want to do something about that. I, now, I had nothing on my face prior to that moment, but in my effort to do my very best to do the right thing at the right moment for the right reason to seal the deal, I had wiped mustard and mayo all the way across my face, looked like a clown. I did not get the scholarship. I did get in the house. So that, that was good. Now, why do I tell you that horrible, horrible story? Because here's the thing about that story. I did exactly what I thought I should do, the right thing. And what I didn't know was, and what Harlan knew, was I was doing the exact opposite of what I needed to do. But if you'd asked me, was I doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons? Was I being smart? Was I doing what I need to do? I would have said yes. But I was dead wrong, wasn't I? I had no idea what I was doing. And only he served as a mirror to me. But I couldn't see it. Only he could see it. Now, here's the tough part about today. James is saying, not to non-believers, but to Christians. Friends, you are doing the, you think you're doing right. You think you're living out the faith. You, somebody has to be your mirror. You're, you're coming to the truth of Christ and you're walking away and, you're, and you, have, you have no idea who you are. You don't know what you look like, what you act like, what you sound like. And, and the world's not buying it because it doesn't look like Jesus. You're just putting some Jesus spin on it and it's not working. And so, so let's look at what James says. I mean, it's a very pointed message. He says, my dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out um, our glorious Christ-originated faith. Right? We're not supposed to look like the world. We're supposed to look like Jesus. If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit and a street person wearing rags comes in right after him and you say to the man in the suit, hey, sit here, this is the best seat in the house, and either ignore the street person or say, better sit here in the back row, haven't you segregated God's children and proved already that you are judges who can't be trusted? Does that happen in the church? Yes. Does it happen here? I hope not. We'll work against it. But, friends, this happens. This has happened for centuries, for millennia, where, where favoritism starts to sneak in. And James says, it's not supposed to be like that. Look who Jesus hung out with. Children, the poor, people he fed, the lame, the deaf, the blind, and rich people, and poor people, all the same. Nobody got a place of preference. So James is asking this question, do our deeds match our convictions? Are we congruent? Now, if you study psychology at all, you'll note that most psychological problems come from incongruence. 
What we say we believe and how we act when they don't match up, it brings stress and anxiety and heartburn, high blood pressure, gastrointestinal problems. All of that stuff comes from not being congruent. The more congruent you are, the more the things that you say you believe, you actually act out those beliefs. You know what comes in your life? Jesus says peace, patience, kindness, generosity, love, goodness. That's what happens when you're congruent. When your walk matches your talk, peace and joy come into your life. This is what Jesus teaches. James is reminding the church of this. God does not segregate or show favoritism. Everybody's welcome. He says, listen, dear friends, isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently than the world? The world has one standard. Jesus has a different standard. He chose the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens with full rights and privileges. This kingdom is promised to who? Anyone who, say it with me, loves God. This is a very important point. Everybody's welcome with this peace. You have to love God. And how do we know if you love God? By loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says. So the kingdom is promised to anyone who, again, say it with me, loves God. That's the litmus test. That's it, friends. There is no other test. The kingdom is promised to anyone who, again, say it with me, loves God. That's it. So when people come to Acts 2, we ask the question, do you love God? Are you willing to walk it out? If so, you're welcome. Everybody's welcome. That, that's it. This is the brother of Jesus talking to us. He says, God's kingdom is made up of inconvenient and unacceptable persons. This is Luke T. Johnson, a professor at Emory University, Candler School of Theology. He says, when the poor cannot find a place in a Christian church, that church no longer has any connection to Jesus. That's pretty pointed. Now, here's the problem. The problem is most churches, most denominations are segregated by socioeconomic lines. If you look around Acts 2, most of us uh, look a lot the same. Now, that's not necessarily our fault because... We kind of live in similar areas. I'm not dogging that. What I'm saying is it's hard to see the kingdom's full reality when that's the case. That certain tribes, traditions, denominations uh, sort of serve one socioeconomic group. Another serves another. Another serves another. Uh, for years, uh, the Methodist church um, in the early days served coal mining families. That was where Wesley hung out. Uh, and they would be moved by the spirit. And you could actually tell they were moved because they had streaks of white on their black faces as they came out of the coal mines. Uh, there was another season in American Christianity, the Methodist Church was marked by school teachers, by and large, middle class. Today, if you look at the United Methodist Church, we're uh, upper middle class or, or lower upper class. Um, that's, that's where our tribe um, hangs out. Problem is, who's most open to the good news and help of Jesus? The poor. And, and so this is, this is a problem um, in American Christianity, particularly in um, our tradition. So Luke T. Johnson has it right. We have to make sure that we're looking for all of God's children and, and reaching out. So James puts it this way. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? The answer is no. Now, I know I'm really going uphill here for everybody who grew up on Lutheranism because if you take Luther in 1517, he says it's faith alone. James says it's not. Now, now, th now this is where it gets tricky. Our founder, John Wesley, said this. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. One on his right, one on his left. He looks at one of them and he says, Truly I tell you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Okay? So is the thief on the cross saved? Yes. I know it gets tricky, doesn't it? Yes, he is. Now, has he done any good works that we know of? No. He has not. And by the way, if you're a really bad person and you go to our church and you die and I do your funeral, this is what I'll say. Right? This is, this is, this is what we have to do. We say, this so-and-so that never did anything good in your home, never did anything good at school, never was nice to his neighbors and kicked your cat, he might go to heaven. Because Jesus loves everybody, right? Who loves him. And this guy did nothing good that we know of, and he still gets 
into eternal life. This is the good news. However, don't be that person. That's such a hard message. Right? We don't want to hope it into existence. I mean, so our founder, John Wesley, says this. If that thief on the cross were to have time and opportunity right, to come down off the cross, then we're going to look at how he lives. And if he did the things of Jesus, he fed the hungry, he clothed the poor, he helped other people, then you would say that he is saved. He's living out his salvation with fear and trembling. However, if he hops off the cross and he goes out and he's like, thanks Jesus, and he continues to rape, steal, and murder, then there's no salvation there. Does this make sense? He's not earning it. He's living out in response to the very love of God. So James would say this, can faith save you? No, not alone. Can't be alone. If a brother or sister is naked, lacks daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is what, friends? Dead. Nope. Unity and attitude and action is James' call, this congruence in life. It's about our action. Actions, though, cannot substitute for attitude. So, so James is going to say here in the next verse, not, not so quick, because here's the problem with liberal Protestantism. A lot of time we'll go out um, and, and we'll do the work, but we won't tell anybody why we do the work. We go out and we help people, and they're like, thanks for the snack. We're like, sure. And there's no connection with our faith life. And friends, that's equally dead, James says. That's, that's not any better. Because the people who need bread also need the living bread, the truth, the life, the real sustenance of our faith. They need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus, friends. But our actions reveal our attitude. So by giving bread, and when somebody says, why are you doing this? Well, because we follow Jesus, and he feeds people, so we feed people. It's in his name and in his power that we do the work. It takes both. So you don't get to read James and say, oh, hey, I don't have to talk about my faith. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. That is not what he's saying. Or you can't read James and say, see, I did my works, I earned my salvation. No, that's not true either. If you are saved and you know that you're saved, then good works must necessarily follow out of your life. As a living sacrifice, that's our worship to God. We say it every week around here. That, that the way we respond to God, our life, is, is our worship to God. So, James says this. I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, Sounds good, you take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. That's very Methodist of us, by the way. Right? I mean, it is. Like, we're going to go serve and let the Baptists talk. I mean, that's, that's kind of how it used to be when I was growing up as a Methodist kid. Not so fast, he says. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith fit together hand in glove. Y'all familiar with gloves? Right? You put them on your hand. Y'all have any gloves at home? They doing anything cool right now? Probably not. They're laying on wherever they are. They do nothing without your hand in them. Right? You got hand in glove. Boom. Faith and works together. Always together, never apart, never apart, both. So if, depending on the translation you read, um, this works might be works, it might be action, it might be response. The very worship service that we do every week uh, is in the long tradition of what's known as the Didache that dates all the way back um, to the early church. And what happens is we have a time of gathering and praise and scripture reading and explication of the text. And then you know what happens next? Response every week. That's why we have communion. That's why we have testimony. That's why we respond by what we do out there. A part of our worship is response. All the rest of it doesn't mean much without response. It takes both. Praise, prayer, and response. And then James just takes it to 
another level, which I'm super uncomfortable with, but I have to share it with you because it's in the text. He says, friends, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? You see, here's the thing. Demons, the forces of darkness in this world, they know Jesus and they call him by name. Jesus comes and they say, what do you want to do with us, son of God? Jesus. They know him. They know his name. They know his power. They know his title. They know everything about him, but they're not going to follow him. Now, if you're a church person for a very long time, you should be really uncomfortable about now. Because, because this is to me, right? This is, these are to our very long time people, right? We can know the truth about God, but if we don't follow him, if we don't love him, if we don't adore him, if we don't do the things that he's a part of, we're not saved. We're a demon. That's what James is saying. We're no different. Either you're working towards the kingdom or you're working against it. There's no middle ground. You can read that in Revelation, right? You've got to be hot or cold. So, so this thing of knowing Jesus, having this mental ascent, won't get you there. You just have to understand this. Demons know who Jesus is, but they're not following him. We don't want to be in that category. And that's why this message is so hard, because over time, we learn so well to ignore the voice of our master and put religious spin on it. So the very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, you get the same thing, a corpse, right? And if you're a physician, you understand this. When the ruach, the breath of life, leaves you, what do you have? A corpse. You're dead. So spirit, right? Glove, no hand. Nothing. To go together. So the moment you separate body from spirit, you're dead. We work with our body by the what? Spirit. It takes both. It takes both, friends. And so you may be wondering, well, what, well, what do I do? This? I can't do everything. You're right. You can't. But you can do something. And the question is, what is God calling you to do? And again, not you individually, Y'all, all y'all, as a community of faith. Us, as a church. The people of God. Uh, one couple in our church, um, uh, they can't be here today because they're out of town uh, visiting family. But one of the things they're doing, they feel led to do, is they're going to have a new baby boy um, on August 24th. And the mom is going to look perfect before and after the birth because it's an adoption. And so they're going to have this little boy because they found a young woman in her 20s um, who has some severe issues. Um, and fortunately, she comes from a family who's forward-thinking enough um, and loving enough to have an open adoption with, with the Bright family, Terry and Ryan Bright of our church, and little Mason, who's 5'6", going into first grade. And so they've come along, this family, this, this young woman and the birth father, um, and they've been green-lighted through the process to accept this baby into their home. And it's super scary because mom and dad can change their mind anytime, and they often do. It's a very hard thing to go through. But they feel called to be a loving home for a child in need. That's what they believe God's calling them to do. And for Mason to become a big brother for the first time. And they're super excited about it. And they asked that we would pray for them about it. And, and so I promised them that we would, that we would pray for them today. I hope you will. Uh, and so we're praying for Ryan and Terry. But, but here's the thing. Their faith requires them to act. They believe that children need wonderful, healthy homes. And they can provide that. And so they're going to provide that. Now, it's not everybody's call. But it's their call. That's the way that... Faith steps into action. And here's, here's where it gets really fun, friends. Because in September, when the baby's a few weeks old, do you know what's going to happen? They're bringing that little baby boy to church. And you know what's going to happen? We're going to say that we're going to surround you with a community of love and forgiveness and grace and joy that you grew up in the way that leads to life. And then when that baby boy starts crying at 3.30 in the morning, if you're a member here, they're going to call you. 
And they say, you remember when I took this little kid to church? And you said that you were going to help me raise this kid in the way that leads to life? Help. And you're going to say, hold on. Just a minute. I'll be there in a minute. I'm coming. Come on, honey. We got to go watch the kid. And then, you know, you go and you watch the kid. And you help because it's not something they do. It's something we do. Right? James isn't talking to you. He's talking to us. He's talking to us. So don't freak out and say, well, I could never do that. That's not the question. The question is, what will God empower us to do together? And so your action step is this. Ask this question. Does my walk match my talk? Say that with me. Does my walk match my talk? Now, step one. If you will, just ask yourself the question. Does my walk match my talk? And if you're like me, it won't take you long to go, sure it does. And move on. And demons do that, by the way. I'm asking you to really ask the question. And and if you want to take it to like the next level, ask God. Before your head hits the pillow tonight, ask God, does my does my walk match my talk? Lord, show me. And and you know what? There are going to be places in your life where it does beautifully. And God's going to be so proud of you and you're going to feel really good about it. Yep, sure does over here. It does. It does. I didn't even realize it, but it really does. And I feel great about that. And then he's going to say, and you got some work over here. Over here, you got some work to do, and you're like, oh, I didn't even see that. It's like that mirror. It's like the whole stupid Pastor Mark mayonnaise face. I I had no idea. And then if you want to take it to spicy, like the top, like you really want to know, ask your spouse. Because they'll tell you. You'll have to be really nice to each other as you do this work, right? But but your people will tell you. The people closest to you, they know where where it matches and where it doesn't. And it's really important that we do this. Because otherwise, we can just be like those people James was talking to where we look in the mirror and we go, oh, yeah, I'm good. And you walk away. You have no idea what's going on in your life. So we want to be people whose walk and talk match. Now, some of you are talkers. You're good talkers. And fortunately for some of you, you're married to walkers. And so if you are a talker who's married to a walker or you're a walker who's married to a talker, do ministry together. It's great. It's great. Again, it's not talking to you. It's talking to you. So don't freak out if you're not good at sharing your faith yet. Go with somebody who is. Learn. And don't freak out if you really are lazy and you just don't like working hard. Go with somebody who is. And they'll tell you. They'll tell you, come on, help. Does this make sense? So, like, hand in glove, walk and talk. Faith and action. You show me your faith, I'll show you action. You show me action, I'll show you faith. And it works together. And together, the community of God transforms the very world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that this is a both and, that you call us both to call you master and Lord and teacher and then to do what you call us to do. That we don't just hear you, we act on what you tell us. And we do it together in your strength and the strength of community with our brothers and sisters walking alongside. And we thank you for it all. That with you, all things are possible. That we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us together. And we thank you for that promise and for that truth. And we ask you to help us to live it out in Jesus' mighty and holy name who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.